0: Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve.
1: Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein.
0: And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk.
1: We're going to take a look at how Congress investigates U.S. spy agencies. But there's also this.
0: If you are listening to this podcast on a smartphone, you're able to do so because of so-called critical minerals used to manufacture the screen, the battery, the speakers. These minerals are labeled critical because of their importance to our economy and security. But China controls the global supply, and one expert says this strategic vulnerability should have the intelligence community's hair on fire.
2: They should consider that the economic power of the United States is critical to our safety, and if it is, and if our military power is essential to our security, uh, then the intelligence
0: community ought to be waving a banner fervently. More of my interview with former Marine Lieutenant General Greg Newbold later in the podcast.
1: Last week's hearing on the January 6th events was packed with emotion. What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them and the people in this room, but too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist or that hell actually wasn't that bad. The indifference, shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. That was Washington, D.C. Police Officer Michael Fanon. Now on to Seamus Hughes. Seamus Hughes is a longtime expert on terrorism, including homegrown violent extremism at the George Washington University. But he's not just an academic. He's worked at the National Counterterrorism Center with the FBI, the Justice Department and on Capitol Hill. As senior counterterrorism advisor for the U.S. Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Last week, he wrote a long thread on Twitter setting forth some rules on how the new House Select Committee on January 6th should go about investigating what U.S. intelligence agencies did or didn't do in the days and weeks leading up to the assault on the Capitol. It sounded a little bit like spy versus spy. Welcome, Seamus Hughes, to the Spy Talk Podcast. In your thread of tweets, you took readers behind the scenes of a congressional investigation into the hidden machinery at work behind all major congressional probes, not just the select committee on the January 6th riot, like earlier probes into the intelligence failures leading up to the 911 terror attacks or into CIA torture and assassination plots. And what you point out is something that the larger public may not be so aware of that the bulk of work is going on outside of the TV lights and cameras, that what the public sees, witnesses testifying, members of Congress asking questions, is just the veneer of a major congressional investigation. Not only that, because a lot of the investigation involves investigating US security agencies, it sometimes sounds like a spy versus spy operation. Is that right?
3: That's exactly right. And it's it's a game of chess. Um you move one piece up and you hope the FBI doesn't doesn't check your queen, right? Uh, and so it's it's a little bit of a back and forth. The FBI, Department of Defense, uh, Capitol Police. I mean, they understand an investigation is warranted. They understand they need to be looked at, but they don't want to be looked at too hard. And that's just the nature of bureaucracies in, in general. And so you've got to do some clever maneuvering, got to use every trick you have in the book as a congressional staffer um, to get the information you need to get. But it's going to be an uphill climb, no doubt.
1: I want to get back to uh, how that investigation of the security agencies goes. But you also wrote on your Twitter thread that who you hire as staff director tells you a lot about where the investigation is going to go. There's already a swirling controversy. Uh, about this new staff director, Donald, uh, excuse me, David Buckley, a former CIA inspector general, who's come under fire for the way he handled a whistleblower investigation. Is this just a tempest in a teapot or does it say something worse?
3: So I I don't know, Mr. Buckley, um, personally. I mean, I would say that there is a a level of concern that if someone has a a history or, or individuals are concerned about his protection of whistleblowers, there may be an issue of people coming forward to the committee. Now, you can address that um, as best you can, and I think the committee's made a determination to, to back their, their staff director, and that's entirely their call. But it also doesn't entirely rely on the senior leadership. Ideally, you're looking for basically three buckets of investigators, right? The first one is um, the political, folks that know how to work with other members of Congress and committees to you know, the Senate Rules Committee and the Senate Homeland Security Committee have already done investigations. So, getting their notebooks, right, and that's just a little bit of handholding. Getting, politics.
1: getting the notebooks of other staffers on other congressional committees,
3: right. You, you don't need to rewrite the book, right? Uh, if somebody else has already done the work uh, and they've done good work, use it. And then the other uh, category of staffers you need is investigators, like people that dig and like to dig and like to know where the bodies are buried and have good sources throughout. That I, I haven't yet to see kind of a big stand up on that, and so it'll be interesting to see how those hires go. And then the last category is the writing uh, people that are good writers. Because the other day, if you collect all the information in the world, but you can't translate that into a document that the public can read, understand, and become part of history, then uh, it's all for naught.
1: Yeah, the uh, commission report on the nine one one attacks was a masterpiece. It became a bestseller.
3: That's exactly right. And and they hired writers to do so. I mean, professional writers to do that. It was smart of them. What do you hear about
1: staffing so far? Any stars there?
3: There's a, there's a number of folks that have been on the Hill for a good number of years, mostly individuals who were with Chairman Thompson for quite a while. And that's important, right? If your boss can trust you, because uh, you're going to get in these points where you have to go into a room, close the door, and stand across from a congressman or a senator and say, you got to do this, right? You've got to put your neck on the line for X, Y, and Z, and you got to trust that I know what I'm doing. And that the only way to do that is if you have five, 10 years with that person where you have built that level of trust. So there is that. Dynamic there, and I'm impressed by a number of people from House Homeland who've been detailed over. I understand more people are going to be detailed over in the coming weeks. Uh, but really, what what's going to come down to for me and determination of whether this is a a truly important kind of congressional inquiry is who they hire as the investigators. Are they former journalists? Are they folks from you know IG's offices, GAO, people that have history and experience getting to the root of of a massive problem.
1: Mm-hmm. Because those kind of people know how to develop their own sources like reporters do inside these security agencies and other target uh, agencies uh, that the uh, January 6th probe is interested in doing. So it's a lot of maybe parking garage meetings to develop sources.
3: Yeah, you know, I've I've done one of those meetings before. And I always thought to myself, you know, Deep Throat's got to be around the corner. But uh, sometimes it's not as seedy as that, especially in the age of of social media. There's something to be said about using comms that way, uh, encrypted comms, one would hope. But yeah, it's absolutely source building. And sometimes you do bring on former journalists who have that experience, but a lot of this is relationship building, right? Who do you know at this department uh, that you can talk to who may get you in touch with the other person? So you go the official route, you talk to the, the press secretaries and the flat, and so you do what you have to do, but you also go the unofficial route too. And the benefit of DC is it's a small town. So at the end of the day, there is going to be someone you know uh, at some art department agency you need to talk to. The trick is, Jeff, you may feel the same way I, I do, which is younger investigators tend to be a little hesitant to do things in the real world or on the phone or pick up the phone. Right? They think you can get all the Indeed. information. You can get all the information online. You know, you don't need to have sources. You can do both. right? And a good investigator should be able to do both.
1: There's no substitute for getting outside the office and Getting the old shoe leather, as it's called, out on the sidewalks, banging on doors to meet people. Exactly. That's the best way it's done. Speaking of best ways, to the extent that the 911 Commission was a success, it was a success because it was a nonpartisan commission made up of notable former government officials, members of Congress, and subject matter experts. The Republicans blocked the Democrats' proposal to create such a commission for the January 6th attacks. So how much do you think this House probe, uh, which is led and dominated by Democrats, is going to be hurt by Republican attacks on it as a partisan witch hunt?
3: Yeah, it's not ideal. Ideally, you you have a bipartisan moment, right? The country comes together and says what happened on January 6th was god-awful and it should never happen again. And let's get to the bottom of that. To be fair, that's not, good. that's not what's happening in this environment. And that's okay, as long as you kind of look at your investigation as not a short-term win. I'm not looking for the political hit tomorrow. I'm looking for history in five years or 10 years. How do I make the definitive report on January 6th? How do I keep my head down, grind it out as a congressional staffer, and hope my bosses don't make this an exercise in partisan hackery, right? I'm I'm hopeful with the folks they have on the committee. Uh, In terms of members, I'm also hopeful in in terms of committee staff. No one's particularly a firebrand in these type of things. But, you know, the framing matters. Think of the first hearing. The first hearing was not this kind of rah-rah kind of partisan type of approach. It was really talking about those four officers in their dress uniforms, explaining that this was not just a simple protest. There was violence, chairs thrown at them, bigotry yelled at them. And this was not just a run-of-the-mill First Amendment type of event. These weren't just tourists hanging out. And, and that's why they decided to go with that route for the first hearing. It's framing. It allows for to tell the story so that you can then go to the investigation part.
1: Yeah, I think it was stunning. It was very moving. There were people on the committee dais and in the audience dabbing at their eyes, suppressing sniffles. It was, by most accounts, a very moving session. Although it didn't escape mocking by people on Fox News and so on, uh, making fun of these police officers, uh, which is quite, quite extraordinary. But um, okay, so where do you expect the uh, hearing the hearings to go next?
3: The very first thing, if it didn't happen before the first hearing, it should happen immediately after the first hearing, which is oversight letters and document request letters to departments and agencies around the country. So you need to send. Here's my 10-page list of everything I want at the Bureau, every document, every 302 investigative file, every electronic communication went to the field, DOD, I want a a run-by-run time of when the National Guard got called. You want to ask for everything in the kitchen sink, and then understanding they're not going to give you anything, right? They're going to fight you tooth and nail, and you're going to have to have this delicate dance back and forth to argue with them of what's most relevant. But the document requests themselves take forever. And so you got to start that process immediately or else it's going to drag your feet. The other thing to think about is some of the documents you're going to get are going to be classified. And so you'll have to look at them in a a secure location. You'll have to then go back and get them declassified if you want to use them in a public report. And that all eats up time too. At the same time, when you're getting the documents, you want to go through them line by line because there'll be some footnote on box 42 of 105 that no one read before. And they're hoping you didn't read because it's a document dump and that gives you the lead to go run, you know, across the country and talk to that source you never talked to before. The documents give you the black and white and then you fill it in with the context with the interviews. So talking to folks to say what did you actually mean in when you wrote this 302? What was going on in your mind? So you want to basically dual track this investigation.
1: You've written before that it's likely that the investigators are going to find somebody who nobody's talked to yet. Despite all the media probes and other congressional investigations going on, there's someone out there who has a big key to what happened leading up to the protests, the riots, whatever you want to call them, on Capitol Hill that no one has talked to.
3: There's always one more person out there. You know, sometimes you chase the white whale so much that you end up going down with the ship. And so you've got to be hesitant and know that in the back of your mind, that maybe that person's not going to talk to you. But occasionally, these folks come out of the woodwork. And sometimes they're not comfortable talking to the Associated Press, but they are more comfortable talking to Congress for a variety of different reasons, including, but not limited to, it doesn't hit against their their security clearance if they talk to Congress versus if they talk to the AP, they report that to the security officer. So there are some levels of protection available to, um, for lack of a better word, whistleblowers who want to talk uh, and, and talk to Congress understanding the, the dynamics happening with the leadership team now. But there's also like time is something to be said to maybe somebody doesn't want to talk the first day, but they saw this, the testimony of those four police officers and they were moved by the moment and they want to be part of a solution or, you know, just things change in their life. They move, they take new jobs like that, and they just get freed up to have a conversation.
1: In the Watergate investigation, one of those famous people who had not been talked to and who emerged out of the blue was an Air Force Colonel, Alexander Butterfield, who came forward and revealed that Nixon had a secret taping system in the Oval Office. That eventually led to his resignation. Do you think there's another Alexander Butterfield lurking in the woodwork uh, who investigators are going to find who are going to say provide the link between the White House and the January 6th riots?
3: I don't know. I mean, I know as every investigator, you want that, that guy, um, but sometimes you don't get it. And you got to be okay with not getting it sometimes. And, and you can't just invent facts for the sake of, of getting there. So you got to go where the facts lead you. You hope you find someone in that parking lot who hands you a, a bunch of documents. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Um, but I would say is, if it's a good investigation, it's going to find out more than what we have in the public record now. A good mm-hmm. investigation will be able to unturn something. The question is where that something is.
1: Of course. One of the uh, major subjects of the investigation, of course, is going to be the intelligence warnings that were and were not given uh, leading up to the January 6th uh, events. Um, This will target the intelligence wing of the Department of Homeland Security, it will target the FBI, and it'll target the Defense Department. One of the ways that these agencies can hinder or stonewall investigators is just drown you in documents, not withhold documents so much as just give you too much to find uh, and bury vital secrets within tons and tons of paperwork. Can you comment on that?
3: It's the, the oldest trick in the book when you're getting investigated at the department agency. You either stonewall it because you don't think they have the goods to force you to, to hand it over, or you give them everything you got. And you give them everything you got, and then you run to Washington Post and say, I don't know why they they're so angry at us. We gave them everything. They, if they can't find anything, it's because there's nothing there to be found. Right? And so that is when you start to get teams. And basically you red team them and you get a team of folks in an office to go through each box. And you get the same, a different team in a different office to go through that same exact box. And you see if you miss something, if either side misses something. And it usually happens is you, you, know, you have your glass of whiskey at the end of the day after working 12 hours, staff, and you're, you're drinking a glass of whiskey and you're talking about it and you say, hey, listen, did you see that weird like, 302 from the Norfolk office that and somebody goes, yeah, that was, that was strange. Hey, do you remember that guy's name on there? Why was that guy's name on there? And then it just starts snowballing into it. It's a similar thing what you would do for an investigation as a journalist. These type of things end up being found if you put the hard work into looking at every document. But it absolutely is, a, is a, an old, age-old inquiry trick to dump a bunch of documents, similar you would do for like a law firm.
1: This again goes back to the quality of the investigators because someone young and inexperienced may not understand the import of a document buried in the DOD or DHS files. That's a big risk. Again, the quality of the investigators is going to be really, really important. What are you looking for down the road? What's going to tell you if this investigation is on track or off
3: track? Uh, well, I'm going to see you know, who they hire up as a staff in the next two or three weeks will determine whether this is going to go a certain way of, you know, partisan bickering or something else, something, and I hope it's something else, something greater than that. It's going, I'm going to be interested in seeing the responses from departments and agencies on the document request. If they decide they're not going to play ball, it's because they don't think the committee has the juice to force them to play ball. And that's when you got to ratchet up the, the public pressure through more hearings, Uh, more op-ed, those type of things, that's really going to determine it. My other concern is everyone wants to have the answer tomorrow. And these type of things, if you're doing this right, they take a long time, six months, nine months, a year even, to really get into it. Because again, you're getting all those documents, you're you're doing those interviews, you're going back and doing new interviews when you get new documents, you're hoping to get them declassified, you're writing, all of those things. What'll be interesting to me is if they decide to do interim reports which is something that other committees have done, other commissions have done in the past, they've been relatively useful um, because it forces your staff to write and understand the issues and get it out in a comprehensible way so that when you have a final report, you've got it all done. The downside on that is sometimes the final report is just basically a rehash of the other interim reports. So it doesn't have that gusto or that push that you would need for a legislative push at the end. So it's gonna have to balance those two.
1: In that this committee is do- led by and dominated by Democrats, I can foresee that will be a tactics that the committee will adopt. I can see the uh, pro-Trump Republicans just wanting to drag this out forever, especially with the elections looming, just run out the clock. You think that's a likelihood?
3: Uh, I don't think it's going to be a likelihood um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that the Biden it's no longer um, the former administration. So the Biden administration has an incentive. Um, to get the information out, or at least they're not disincentivized to work with Congress on this. Uh, the other thing is the makeup of the committee; uh, they've got the votes right now. So if they want to, you know, put out a report, they can put out a report. The real question is what the response is going to be from the other side when the report comes out. How do they frame um, that report? And that's why it's going to be so important to do a serious job on this, right? Not just you know copy and paste a few things that you read at the Washington Post and the AP, but really roll up your sleeves and do God's honest work. On investigations.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: sure going to emerge in a cauldron of partisan politics like everything else these days, it seems. We'll be following this very closely, Seamus Hughes and certainly We'll be talking to you down the road. Thanks so much for your input on the Spy Talk podcast today.
3: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: That was Seamus Hughes, Deputy Director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. Next up, Gene talks with General Greg Newbold about how China has a grip on critical minerals used by U.S. spy agencies.
0: Lithium, cobalt, tungsten are among more than 30 minerals classified as critical because they are so important to high tech in particular. But one country dominates their mining and processing, and it is not the United States. Former Marine Lieutenant General Greg Newbold says it is way past time for the U.S. government, including the intelligence community and the military, to do more than talk about China's almost total dominance in critical minerals.
2: Well, within the category of critical minerals, uh, there are what we also call rare earth metals and those are used extensively for military purposes and in the case of this conversation for intelligence purposes and things like satellites aircraft reconnaissance aircraft included or radar for vehicles submarines wide variety of things for military purposes the critical minerals are used for Electric vehicles, wind turbine engines, electronics in your smartphone or computer, and much more broadly than I've just described. Even if you have a smart refrigerator, they use these critical minerals. But in some, what they do is they give uh, a competitive advantage to the manufacturers that use them.
0: And China dominates in this space?
2: They do. The United States produces or manufactures, rather, a different term, uh, virtually none of it. But 80 percent of the rare earths come to us from China. Very few other countries do that. And
0: uh, we are extremely vulnerable as a result. Essentially, they could put a chokehold on us.
2: They could, and they've used that leverage in the past. When the Japanese expressed an opinion in 2011 that was contrary to the Chinese policy, China shut off exporting rare earths to Japan uh, in order to punish them. They've also uh, demonstrated how they control the critical minerals and rare earths by raising prices or
0: lowering prices, whichever served their advantage. And if they were to choke us off, what would the implications be?
2: The immediate implications would be minor, and that is uh, for months. But for more than months, the consequences on our economy would be considerable. If you think of Apple, Google, any of the technology companies, but moreover than that, our economy writ large, And as I've described in the products that use rare earth metals and critical minerals, then the military would over time lose the capability to incorporate them. And even in commercial aircraft, it would have consequences, and our economy would suffer dramatically.
0: Now, the US has deposits of these minerals, doesn't it?
2: Uh, We do. As a matter of fact, until. Through the 1980s, we were the leading producer in the world. What happened? Several things happened, but most of it can be attributed to the fact that Chinese could produce it uh, both at ultra low cost and they had no environmental restrictions. It is an extremely polluting process, and they were willing to do that. Uh, We were not. Uh, the United States tried again in 2000 uh, with a mine in California called the Mountain Pass Mine. Uh, and it uh, started out pretty well economically, but the, Jap- the Chinese recognized that cut the cost dramatically, caused the company to go bankrupt in 2015. So while we have the deposits, we do not have ability to process uh, the minerals and therefore ship them to China for further process.
0: Do any of our allies have those capabilities, either the, the deposits that they could mine or the refining capabilities?
2: I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the uh, critical min- minerals is called neodymium iron boron. It's a 24-step process. only really two countries produce that in its elementary form, China and Australia. China can process them almost through the entire supply chain. Australia can't for environmental reasons and because they don't possess the license that is now controlled by Hitachi. So Australia exports the raw material to Indonesia who has agreed to process it for the time being. Limited contract, fragile relationships, strikes have shut down the mine before. So as you can see, others do produce it, but not in great quantity and at some vulnerability.
0: Is there the possibility that the U.S. could create an alternative supply chain that is not reliant on China?
2: We can and should, but it's a very lengthy process. Various administrations have proclaimed that they will do that going back there for at least eight years. But the process is, is so lengthy and so expensive that it has to be a combination of the private sector and the government sector working hard on it. Uh, but it, there are so many environmental restrictions uh, that... Even with the best of intentions, uh, it could be vulnerable. There are also the economic factors, as I've described. Mali Corp went bankrupt, and when, when the Chinese undercut their prices, so it's going to take a conservative concerted effort of the public and private sectors. It's going to take dramatically more money than's been allocated, and it's also going to take uh, a lot more knowledge and passion on the part of commerce.
0: Other countries have deposits. And from my reading, it seems like China is making some very smart investments around the world to keep its supply of raw materials flowing. That's a
2: very good point. And in fact, Chinese companies are an investor in the new attempt to uh, produce ore out of the mountain pass mine in California. That's owned by a, a, a U.S. corporation. The Chinese are investors in that. They're investors in a, a Japanese company that's producing it, uh, and in an Australian, in the Australian company. Wherever there's a supply chain process going on, the Chinese are there.
0: Wait, wait, wait! The United States is letting them invest in a company in California that involves these minerals. Correct.
2: They do not have a controlling interest. And uh, the company indicates that the Chinese don't have a uh, influence over the output, but they, they are active investors.
0: Does that make you uncomfortable?
2: In this case, probably not, because the Chinese have no leverage over the operations. Do they have insight into what's happening in the manufacturing? Yes. That causes me a little concern, but it causes me more concern uh, in all the other attempts that are made around the world. Germans uh, in the UK and Australia, and they are keeping, the Chinese, that is, are keeping very close tabs on whoever may be developing an alternative, what they now control.
0: So what should the U.S. be doing to deal with this?
2: Um, A couple of things. Uh, Knowledge and information is the first step. Although I think leaders on the Hill and in the government would all say that they have passion about rare earths, but they don't understand the entire supply chain and their views are frankly myopic. Uh, but beyond uh, developing the necessary knowledge, I think a great deal more money needs to be applied. So far, the total investment by the government in grants to these companies is on the order of $50 million. With the, the, the bills on the Hill right now, $1 trillion in one case, over $3 trillion in the other, I think we can afford to... Uh, to invest significantly in something that's such a critical vulnerability.
0: Because the, the impact on our economy could be so, so much greater than that, correct?
2: Oh, absolutely. That's, that's a good equation. Uh, it'd be catastrophic loss for our economy and in dollars. I would also say that acad- academia performs a role too, and that is seeking alternatives to the processing that's now so heavily polluting or to alternatives to the
0: critical minerals themselves. And how is that research going? Do you have any idea?
2: There are encouraging signs, but it's a very lengthy process. It will not be like developing a vaccine for COVID, but more in terms of five to 10 years. But it has to be done, and it has to be supported more strongly by the government.
0: Five to 10 years. What do you think the time frame really is for dealing with this?
2: Uh, Well, we're past time when we should have dealt with it. The Chinese uh, have the ability and the willingness to change the equation at any time they want to. And, And some of their leaders have indicated they should. We're past time when we should have acted. How much time do we have? Gene, we need to move far greater alacrity than we are now.
0: So you've said that the intelligence community should do more and paying more attention to this issue. Explain what you mean. Well, first of all, I
2: don't have deep insights to exactly what they're doing, but let me say what uh, they should be doing. Perhaps they are. And that is that they should consider that the economic power of the United States is critical to our safety. And if it is, and if our military power is essential to our security, uh, then the intelligence community ought to be waving a banner fervently and insisting that leaders uh, in the administration and on the Hill appreciate how and possibly when the leverage that the Chinese possess could be applied to us and the consequences of that leverage.
0: Now, intelligence assessments are produced quite frequently by the intel community. I'm sure you've taken a look at them. Do uh, these critical minerals have the profile they should within those reports?
2: Well, in open source reports, no,
0: uh,
2: they don't. I don't obviously have access to presidential daily briefing or, or other things, but my clarion call is that they should be focusing on this as a great vulnerability to the US. And uh, while proclamations are important, a far greater level of activity needs to be performed. It needs to be a Manhattan Project.
0: We're facing a wide array of threats, cybersecurity, climate change, political upheaval in parts of the world, terrorism. Where do you think this ranks in the roster of threats facing the country?
2: Well, I think it's in the top three, really. Um, I think all of those things you've outlined and more are real and have to be addressed. But I would also argue that they are being addressed in one form or another, perhaps not adequately. It could be argued. But I would say this is the great understated threat to the U.S., and that's why I'm urging uh, us to change how we address it.
0: A human cry has been raised over this issue for years. Why hasn't it resonated?
2: Well, I think for the reasons that you've outlined, Gene, there are many priorities, uh, and politics is local. Uh, At this point, it's a, a global threat, and certainly a national one. Uh, I think that politics in Washington right now is so corrosive that it's hard to get bilateral support. There is a subcommittee uh, on the Hill in the House of Representatives trying to work on it, but with with the shrill voices uh, controlling the discussion and very legitimate reasons uh, for activity, this one has just not made the level of attention it deserves.
0: Is it a failure of national leadership not to address it?
2: If you include in the national leadership title uh, the administration, the Hill, the media, academia, the military leadership, etc., then yes, absolutely, it's a failure of national leadership.
0: You mentioned military leadership. I'm surprised that you feel they have not been responsive to this.
2: They have not. Uh, I feel that very firmly. I've had discussions with uh, the Department of Defense. In the previous administration, and I think their concerns were real and sincere in the Department of Defense, but it ranked so low in the relative list of priorities that there was virtually no movement. One of the things I urged, along with a lot of compatriots, is uh, that we stockpile more. Uh, The stockpiling effort is, is so meager that it's almost irrelevant, but military leaders just as they've spoken out in favor of uh, activity for climate change, they need to do the same thing, perhaps not publicly, but they need to do it The administration on the head.
0: You mentioned stockpiling. Is recycling another possible approach?
2: Well, uh, there, there have been advances in recycling. Lithium batteries, uh, automobiles and cell phones, computers, et cetera, but uh, by the best estimate, that makes up about, in its most optimistic case,
0: 2% of the need. Do you have a scenario of what could happen if we don't come to grips with this?
2: At the current level of attention, uh, what we're doing is gambling with our futures and it's rolling the dice. If we are lucky uh, and Chinese begin to like us and we like them and it's a wonderful world, then you know, we have 10 or 15 years to solve this. On the other hand, if uh, the tensions over the Taiwan Strait and this Southeast Asia or in any of a number of ways, cybersecurity, human rights, et cetera, uh, cause great friction, then don't be surprised if the Chinese
0: constrict the flow of critical minerals to the United States. That was Lieutenant General Greg Newbold, who since retiring from the U.S. Marine Corps has been working on the issue of critical minerals with a broad group of individuals and companies urging an all-of-government response to what he sees as a major, largely unaddressed vulnerability. You know,
1: Gene, it seems like there's been lots of whispering about this problem for years now, sort of in the back rooms of the national... Security agencies. And now the rubber is hitting the road. We are decoupling or attempting to decouple our economies. And uh, this issue of critical minerals and our security is getting caught under the treads. So I don't see a fast solution to this problem anytime soon.
0: But as the general mentioned, Congress is finally looking at allocating big chunks of money to addressing this. We will see what happens. Thanks a lot for joining us this week on Spy Talk. Remember to follow Spy Talk on Substack. I'm Jean Mazur.
1: And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for tuning in. And we hope you'll be here next week for the next edition of the Spy Talk podcast.
0: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.